Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan, joined by Guy Adami and Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. We have a big show here today. Our A Block, as we call it in the biz, going to be the three of us talking about a whole host of things going on this week. Lots of earnings, a lot of data. We got a lot going on to interpret what happened with holiday sales on, on Black Friday and Guy's favorite Monday of the year, Cyber Monday. Love Cyber Monday. That's today, right? That is today, Guy. I know that you've been busy all morning checking all your emails and seeing all the deals. But we also have a very special drop of what are we doing? That would be Danny Moses, Vincent Daniel, and Porter Collins of Seawolf Capital. And the guys get back together here and they're talking a little bit about their market outlook for the moment, how they're thinking about things into the new year, some themes in energy. They've been bulls on the energy complex, precious metals. Guy, you're going to want to stick around for that. Obviously, there's a little Tesla talk. They're also talking about market structure and the like there. So a great conversation. Stick around for that. Okay, guys, any epiphanies? I always find Thanksgiving interesting. My family in particular, we go upstate. My family comes back from all over the country the stuff that we talk about, some of the things we take away. I'm sure, Liz, your folks are asking what it's like in the big city, that sort of thing. <laughs> Guy, people want to know what's happened to your Giants, what happened to the Yankees this year, maybe a few other things from Nostradami here. Any big epiphanies, Liz, that you want to you know, well, impart on us from the, the, the holiday week? Look, I so I wasn't in Wisconsin this oh. year. I don't know what the vibe was there. Yeah. However, I do feel like I'm getting questions earlier about what I want for Christmas, okay. and I've had to tell them what I want. So I do think people are ahead of it on the holiday shopping spree. And I was in the city. I was in New York City for the most of the weekend out and about on mm-hmm. Saturday, not on Black Friday, but out and about on Saturday. I felt like it was quieter than really I expected quiet. it to be. Even at dinner, people were around and maybe just people were out of town yeah. home for the holiday. But 
I felt like the shopping crowd was quieter. And I'll let you know, after this coming weekend, I'm going to do that whole like Rockefeller Center thing. Yeah, of course you are. And I've done that before. So I have a baseline of how many people are going to be around there too. I did some shopping myself this weekend. Obby, again, Obby. Well, well, again, why I feel is this like weekend di- different than any other weekend? I will say this. Well, fair. Yeah, I'm just doing a little name drop. <laughs> on Saturday, I got a table for eight at six o'clock at Pastis, day of. I'm just saying. Wow. So that's, yeah. And anecdotally, if you talk to Uber drivers or cab drivers, they said it was quiet. But yes. again, guys, everything leads back to Cyber Monday. For you, maybe the folks are not out and about at Saks and Macy's and that sort of thing. And maybe they are shopping on the line. Why would you want to endure and try to fight your way through the crowds when you can sit in the comfort of your boxer shorts or pajamas, footy pajamas, and buy things willy-nilly on the line? Obviously, that's where we're going. And one of the questions that I got, and we had a pretty young crowd at our house for Thanksgiving this year, it's, you know, a lot of people struggling to try to figure out the job market. And then on the flip side of the things, they say, why is the job market so difficult and the stock market doing so well. And I think a lot of people are trying to come to grips with that. So that's what my takeaway was. Again, that chasm between the real economy, which I think is really not troubling, but I think it's confounding to a lot of people. And then the flip side of the coin, the stock market seems impervious to everything. It's funny, guy, and you've said this for years on, on Fast Money and obviously in our pods, the disconnect between what the stock market's saying, what the headlines are saying, and how people who are not tuned in like we are every day, how they interpret that relative to the economy and then really what's going on in their own lives. And the jobs one is a really interesting situation. And then the thing I just say, in, in my family, I, I got a lot of questions about mortgage rates and just the speed in which they've gone up since last Thanksgiving, when you think about that. And everybody thought they could buy a home at, at some point over the last few years, no matter where you lived and what your income level. And we know the supply demand issues were interesting, but some of the data in the housing market is also starting to weaken. And so I guess at some point, if we were to see the stock market come in, if we were to see what Guy suspects is a mid 4% sort of unemployment rate at some point next year or possibly higher, and we could be in for a difficult wealth effect environment. And this leads me to something I read in Axios over the weekend, and it was obviously a little cheeky, but the economic trends we are grateful for, Americans are working, Activity is surging. The banking crisis that wasn't. Gas is getting cheaper. And these are all things that we've talked about. But Liz, they do fly in the face of what like Guy was just saying in a way. The headlines say this, but what real people are feeling is something different. There's a couple things. So something interesting about the labor market that people should watch, and the headlines will start saying this if it happens. There's something called the SOM rule. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. Anybody who's listening, if you haven't, just look it up. It's S-A-H-M. The rule is that if you if the three month moving average of the unemployment rate moves above the lowest point in the last 12 months, it triggers that's a supposedly a recession signal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is just one data point, one thing. It's a theory. It's not something that's tried and true forever, but something to watch. If the unemployment rate gets to 4%, if we get a reading of 4% mm-hmm. in December, that rule will be triggered. Mm-hmm. If it stays at 3.9, it won't quite happen yet. Anyway, just something to look at. So we're sort of on the cusp of those times when the unemployment rate is moving up to a point where we might get worried about it. The thing about the data, the headlines, is that there's still no confirmation that things are bad, yeah. right? Of course, they're cooling. We needed them to cool. So that's where the, the bull case still remains intact. We were expecting things to cool. We needed growth to slow. We needed the unemployment rate to tick up. We needed the housing market to cool off. We needed demand to slow down. So all of that is still in line with what should happen in a good scenario. And I think that's why, again, the bull case is still intact. And that's why you're seeing people join in on the bull case, because there's no real data that's showed us yet that things are terrible 
sustainable or moving in a bad direction. Yeah. In 2024, we probably start to figure out whether or not that's going to happen, right? Will we tip over beyond 4.5% unemployment? Will there be confirmation that things are actually bad despite what the stock market is doing and despite what some of the data So, Guy, this is a really interesting one. And and is there an intersection between, let's say, 4.5% in the 10-year yield and 4.5% on the unemployment rate that might not be so good for risk assets? Like when you think about that, because you made this point and there was an article in the journal, Investors See Interest Rate cuts coming soon, recession or not. It's talking about the outcomes in which we have rates cool off. And and interest rate futures indicated last week roughly a 60% chance that the Fed will lower rates by a quarter of a percentage point by its May 2024 policy meeting up from 29% at the end of October. It was a month ago, right? That's according to CME Fed Funds Tracker. And then they see four cuts by the end of next year. So the Fed Funds rate is on the upper bound, 5.5%, right? So if we get to 4.5% by the end of next year, what sort of world that we live in. If you are buying the S&P right here into year end after a 9% rally since yields came off 5% to 4.45 in the 10-year, you are betting on a soft or no landing. And, and I just can't see a scenario where that is particularly likely. We had another Liz on our show on the podcast, Lizanne Saunders, and she talked about be careful what you wish for in terms of rate cuts next year. And I, I agree with that. And again, you know, it's a scenario in which why would the Fed be cutting? Now, the bulls will say because inflation is coming down and they navigated this extraordinarily well. And the unemployment rate is still acceptable, probably somewhere between maybe four and 4.2% and everything's coming up roses. And I guess that's a possible outcome. I just don't think that's a likely outcome. California unemployment Employment rate has been basically, I think, north of four and a half percent for many, many months. That typically leads. I'd have to go back and look exactly when that started. And I've said this for a while, and I think our Liz agrees that it's not going to be a linear move higher in the unemployment rate. It's going to be this three, nine, four, two, four, six, I think, that catches everybody off guard. And the resilience of the consumer in terms of their want to spend is going to be tested in a major way. And when you start seeing that, again, people starting to be concerned about their jobs, what's going on with the unemployment rate? rate. That's when spending stops on a dime. And we've seen it before. And when you have an economy driven by people's want and ability to spend, I think that's problematic going into next year. If you look at what's happening just in the the hiring market right now, there's always a sequence of events. First, people stop hiring as much, right? Businesses Mm -hmm. slow down their hiring. There haven't been big cuts yet. There have been a few headlines, Mm -hmm. but nothing that's swept through an industry entirely. I talk about the slope of a line a lot. Beware the slope of the line. Mm -hmm. So when you look just over history at the unemployment rate, it hits an all-time low right before it spikes back up. I'm not saying that it has to happen that way Mm -hmm. every single time, but it turns out that is usually how it happens. So Guy is right. It's not going to be a linear function where you've got this kind of stepwise fashion Mm -hmm. of the unemployment rate. We just we tick up a, a tenth of a percent every time. Usually it does speed up and it will take that first bellwether company to do it that surprises people, right? And then suddenly it's, okay, they did it. Mm -hmm. Now we can do it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be first. But when you start to see those job cuts come through, they sweep through an industry pretty quickly and it happens very fast. So as of October, the unemployment rate in California was 4.8%. 
just for perspective, and as I mentioned, California typically leads the the rest of the country by however many months. Let's call it six months. So there's a lag effect. But you know, when you have a 4.8 percent unemployment, you can't just discount it and say it's California specific. Historically, that's been a great indicator. So I just wanted to make sure I got some numbers around that. What's interesting, also though, guy, is that this is what happened into the 2022 bear market. In a way, we saw some of those big employers starting cutting jobs. Now, to be fair, in 2020 or the back half in 2021, a lot of those companies went on huge hiring binges, which basically right. that monetary policy, fiscal policy caused this orgy of buying and, and risk assets, everything that kind of wasn't bolted down. But to your point on, on the consumer, Liz, and we're going to get some data, obviously, this week and, and next it's from CNBC, Black Friday shoppers spent a record $9.8 billion in U.S. online sales, up 7.5% from last year. Now, again, the, the, the point there was online sales on Black Friday. I think a lot of behaviors switch during COVID, right? A lot of those in-person Black Friday sales turned into online things that just now are lasting a couple of weeks or so. But I thought it was interesting that 79 million of the sales came from consumers who opted for the buy now, pay later, which might suggest what you're saying is that we're starting even with gas at the pump coming in and the like and inflationary readings around are coming down year over year, obviously, but they're still up year over year in just absolute terms. Certain parts of the consumer are really strapped. And we've seen that from five below and Dollar Gen and, and some of these other kind of discount retailers. Yeah. Buy now, pay later is just today's version of layaway, if we remember the layaway days. And I don't have a gauge of how much that has increased, let's say, over the last five years. But to me, those are indications that what people are buying is stuff that they can't afford right now, right? And you're stretching it out further and further in order to be able to pay it off later. I mm-hmm. talked about this, I think, last week. There's this cycle, too, that happens after holiday spending. So we've got the holiday spending season that occurs all the way through December. And then you get to January and February and it's this hangover effect where the credit card bill comes Mm -hmm. or maybe the buy now, pay later bill comes. And if people can't make those payments, you start to see delinquencies tick up because they overspent. Now, I'm not saying that has to happen this time, but it's definitely something to watch. I think it's more likely that it happens this time than in other years just because of the propensity of spending. Also, the dollar amount, when we're in an inflationary environment, the dollar amount of spending is less meaningful Mm -hmm. because if prices have gone up, of course, the dollar amount went up. The dollar amount of revenue went up. Again, inflation hasn't come down. There's been no negative print. So if people are spending more, they're spending it because stuff costs more, right? If you just look at the promotions, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks. Maybe Black Friday was so healthy because people are trying to get a deal. Again, I talked about being out and about shopping. Mm -hmm. I was in person. There was a promotion. I like perfume. Mm -hmm. I splurge on perfume. I'll I'll buy really never wear it in the studio, which is really nice because I'm allergic to perfume. Remember back in the days when you'd walk into like a Macy's that the, the one area that you walk into yeah. for some reason, it's just like all perfume. I yes. literally needed like a gas mask to walk in. <laughs> I literally would come out. It's my splurge item. Yeah, okay. So I will spend whatever it takes on the perfume that I want. Yeah. Never is it run under a promotion, the brand that I wear. I got $100 off Whoa. in person this weekend. That never on happened. On one bottle? What, what's the one price bottle. point on that, Liz? Jeez, well, talk about splurging guys. Well, I'll tell you what exactly. it was. Without knowing Elizabeth's perfume choices, I bet you this is in the Creed family, if I had a guess. It is not. It is not. Ger- Good guess, though. There's one perfume that I don't mind because I bought it for my wife 25 years ago when we were dating, and uh-huh. she's still to this day, not the same bottle. It's an Issey Miyake. It's a 
cool bottle. It's like a uh-huh. long, you ever seen that? Uh-huh. That's what yep. every once in a while. Yep. Okay. Anyway, my yeah, the anywho. point is I somehow got a hundred dollars off, yeah. which would never happen. And by the way, that sale was only if you were in person. I couldn't have gotten that online. Oh, okay. So stores trying to entice people to come in person because foot traffic is low. Why not? Okay. Yeah, let's bring it back to the stock market here. So there was an article in the journal over the weekend. Investors are hungry for risk and holding record cash sums. Guy, you love the cash on the sidelines. Invesco QQQ Exchange Chained Fund reported its largest weekly inflow in history the week of November 13th. And just to be clear, the QQQ made an intraday low. It was a four-month low. It traded at levels it had not traded since May. Okay, so this was on October 27th. And yesterday's close was up, I don't know, somewhere like 13% from that intraday low. The S&P was up 11%. Guy, I know that you don't exactly love those cash on the sidelines, so just, especially when cash can actually earn a proper return these right. days. That's what's different this time about cash on the sidelines. If they were hungry for risk, that money would seemingly be putting to work. So maybe they think they're hungry for risk, but clearly they want anything but at this point. And to your point, in a zero interest rate environment, this makes sense. And when rates are where they are now, there are no risk-free alternatives, but relative risk-free alternatives in the form of the bond market. And I've been hearing about cash on the sidelines since we started doing Fast Money in 2007. And I just think a lot of times it's just this lazy thing people throw out there when they don't have anything else to say. I agree. Cash on the sidelines. There's also, you know, you hear about the the demise of the dollar. The dollar's been going away since I started in this industry. So cash on the sidelines. Yes, there's more right now, but I don't know that it's sideline cash. That's That's different. Sideline cash is sitting there waiting to be deployed. This is people making rational decisions about the fact that cash is paying 5%. So I don't think that's sideline cash. That's an active investment decision. I want that 5% because I can't get it somewhere else. I think that's completely different. It's going to take more convincing to get people to take their money out of that and put it into the market at these valuations. So one thing that's interesting, and we spent some time with Lizanne on the pod on Friday, or I think it dropped on Thursday. So check that out. Lizanne Saunders from Schwab, the other Liz, as we say, she's been as you have, Liz, for the better part of the last 18 months talking about rolling recessions, right? Mm -hmm. From sector to sector, and it's been reflective in the stock market. Maybe that's what's been different this time about the the stock market. And she talked a lot about like her factor models that look at this. And so it's interesting to me, we've had this talk, a lot of talk about the concentration, the S&P and the NASDAQ. And I just kind of want to relay a conversation because somebody tweeted at us about this, the conversation we had with Liz about the concentration guy. And I think you thought this was a really interesting conversation, but this guy, P. Parlette One said, thanks to Lizanne Saunders for calling out the bear talking point of the only seven stocks that are up more than half of the S&P 500 stocks are up. And, and he gave me a, a list of the year-to-date returns, the S&P 500 in the order. And also a guy who's a listener of the pod, Sam K, we had this conversation. He actually sent me a similar thing. And, and to me, I, I don't think it says what you guys think it says. Because when you look at the S&P 500 and you look at those seven stocks that make up 30% and all of them are on average up more than 50% with NVIDIA, which is $1.2 trillion in market cap, up 230%. Meta's number two up 180%. And that's a six, 700 billion or whatever it is. All of the returns in the S&P 500 this year are, are from those top seven names. And now you have to go down this list and we'll put it in the show notes to 
270 because that's when it flips to the bottom 230 that are down on the year. This is a year, okay, where the S&P is up 19%. So 230 of the stocks are down on the year. And then the ones that you want to say, oh, but it's not just that the mag seven that are performing so well, there's a hundred stocks that are up more than the S&P's 19% return, but most of them have market caps of less than $50 billion. You know what I'm saying? So what my point is, is like why I care about the concentration and guy, you said it on the pod on Friday was that when everyone heads to the door at the same time, it can get really small. And so people go for the very liquid sort of thing. So guy, just let's put a point on people want to dunk on just saying, oh, well, you guys have been proven wrong. You talk about this thing incessantly. You know, it's funny, man, like the return peak to trough from the highs in July to the lows was what, 12 something like percent. People forget so forget COVID, the down 35% that we had. Obviously, we had 2022. We had 20% in late 2018, okay, when the Fed was raising rates prior to that for no reason. Guy, can you remember other than rates were higher than where they had been over the last couple of years? And then there was a global growth scare. And then the Fed had to do an about face on rate hikes to rate cuts. So for you folks out there who think it's a great do that the Fed has kept rates high for so long and they're going to have to aggressively cut, I don't think it it's going to mean for stocks what you think it's going to mean when they finally do it, guy. Yeah, and I, I'm not listen. I'm not certain they do have to aggressively cut again unless something breaks. And in terms of people not wanting to hear it, and the Goldman Sachs had a piece, a note on this, I think last week or the week before about hedge funds in again these ten stocks and the weight with which they were in them. And my point is this: it's like you're at a great party and somebody comes up to you and says, "Listen, the cops are going to be here any minute now. We should start." And everybody, ah. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? It's a great party. Don't worry. And the cops at some point do show up. And it's the same thing here. Nobody wants to hear us say things are going to go pear-shaped at some point because they're enjoying themselves right now. And one of the things I've also learned over the years is everybody tells you that they want to hear the truth. The reality is people just want to hear what reinforces their belief system, what makes them feel good and what allows them to sleep at night and wake up in the morning. They don't want to hear what we've been trying to say. Now, with that said, a lot of things that I've been saying have not come to fruition, but it doesn't mean they won't. I think there's an inevitability to all of this. I mean, if history is any guide, I think there is an inevitability. And the longer it delays, I think the worse it could potentially be. So here's something that I think people should keep in mind. We talk about the redemptions or selling pressure more in a sense of thinking about individual investors as if they're going to make this decision, oh, I don't want to own the Meg 7 anymore. That's different than what actually occurs. What actually occurs is think about these big money managers. Guy just alluded to some hedge funds. There's also a bunch of mutual fund managers out there. There's ETFs that own this stuff. When investors at large start to submit redemption requests, right? Think about if you're running a mutual fund, a redemption request comes in, the mutual fund is forced to meet it. You have daily liquidity in that. You're forced to meet it. If you have to meet that redemption request, you got to sell stuff in order to provide the cash to this investor. Once those redemptions start rolling in, those funds are forced to get out of the positions that they're in. They're not even making necessarily an active decision. Oh, I don't want to own Apple anymore. It's that I have to sell some stuff to meet this request. That's where you end up with this crowded auditorium of people. The fire alarm goes off, one door opens in the back and everybody's trying to run out. So when those redemption requests come in because somebody got nervous, maybe it's the labor 
supermarket that makes people nervous. It's not an active decision of, I really like this stock, I want to keep it. It's that you've got big money managers, big hedge funds, a lot of money in the institutional space that is forced to get out and they sell the top first, right? They sell the big stuff first. That's really- Yeah, and and I guess the last point I'll just make, and and Sam K made this point to me, it really depends. What is your benchmark, right? If you're listening to this and you're not an institutional investor, right? Like you're picking allocations, you're picking individual stocks, you're picking concentration levels in your own portfolio. Hopefully what we tried to do is let you think a little bit about what the consensus narratives are, how to pick those sort of apart. And I I like to think there's plenty of things that we're constructive on. And when I say we, I I, I mean more Guy, Danny, and myself, Liz, you are often very constructive, but you also know when to be cautious. And you also know that you're not speaking to folks. Your customers at SoFi, they are not benchmarked against anything. And so any wisdom that you can impart about portfolio management or selection of individual securities makes a lot of sense. Understanding things about like sentiment and the like here, all that stuff. So that's what we're trying to do here. All right, Guy, before we get out of here, we're not done with earnings. Lot, lots of earnings left. And, and I think tonight, Monday after the close, Zscaler, interesting. Tomorrow, we have Workday, Splunk, NTAP, Synopsis. These, this is a testing company for semi-equipment. Snowflake, big market cap, big valuation. Actually been a laggard to some of its peers. Okta, Salesforce on Thursday, kind of a big one. Also Dell, which has been an outperformer. So there's some stuff going on that I think is to be gleaned as far as how companies, like what I took away, Guy, from Q3 earnings and Q4 guidance was visibility. And it doesn't seem great right now for individual companies, which kind of fits into, I think, the narrative that we just explained about the disconnect between the economy and what the stock market is saying. If you listen to the retailers, the visibility they think they have is not particularly constructive. I mean, across a swath of retailers, you've heard they're concerned about 2024. If you listen to John Deere, for example, which is completely the other side of the spectrum, but dealer inventories have been building. And obviously that's not necessarily a good thing because they're not seeing the commensurate demand to offset those inventories. And again, some of the stocks you mentioned this week, obviously the tail end, they're all interesting names in and of themselves. NTAP, Zscale, you mentioned, Salesforce. I don't necessarily know if it's they're going to paint a picture for the broader market, but each idiosyncratically, you're going to have a story to tell that I think will, to your word, glean something going forward. And quickly, just in terms of the, again, the large allocations in these names. Passive investing has been a great thing for these stocks. They're basically their own asset class, if you want to look at it that way. And when passive investing works to the upside, everything seems great. The problem is, to Liz's point about redemptions, when passive becomes active, it's never active on the way up. And she made the point, they don't have a decision to make. The decision is made for them if, in fact, these redemptions come in. And you know, it's easy getting in. The easy part is getting into the trades. The hard part, historically, has been getting out because everybody seems to try to do it at the same time. All right, Liz, anything on the economic data front this week that our listeners should keep uh, an ear open for? We have Consumer Confidence Tuesday. We have Core PCE on Thursday. Is that interesting? ISM Manufacturing on Friday. There's a bunch of stuff littered in and around there. Anything that you're focused on? The PCE is a second read. The Consumer Confidence data this week is probably the most important. This week is actually not that exciting as far as economic data goes. Next week, so here's an interesting piece. Usually Jobs Friday is the first Friday of every month. Since December 1st is Friday, 
they wait another week. Mm -hmm. So we get Jobs Friday a week late mm -hmm. this time. So we're going to get Jobs Friday December 8th. And then we've got the Fed meeting a few days later. I think that's actually going to be the concentrated econ data mm -hmm. stuff of the month, starting maybe mid next week, late next week into the following week is when my Super Bowl yeah. begins. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Guy, we spent some time on Friday talking about it. The VIX at 13 is discounting a whole heck of a lot. It's very mm -hmm. near the one year lows. I'm looking at for my friends over there at Options AI, the implied weekly move in the S&P is less than 1%. The NASDAQ 100 is a little over 1%. The, the Russell 2000 is 1.5% or something like that. So expectations for volatility have ground down as the NASDAQ has gotten back to its prior highs. The S&P is not far away and yields seem to have found a home. We've been talking about this market in the 10-year four at five a little bit. And to me, if we are, and I, I think, Guy, you think there's a chance this could happen. If 10-year does, for any reason, go back towards 5%, okay, gets closer to that, I just can't see the S&P hanging around here at 45.50. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, because rates will not be going higher because there's this resurgence in economic activity and all things are coming up roses. They're going to go higher because you have a couple of really miserable bond auctions. Inflation continues to rear its ugly head, which Liz said it earlier about 20 minutes ago. Inflation isn't going down. It's just going up less quickly. And that's not meant to be nuanced. That's just the math. So people living out there understand that there's this cumulative effect of inflation that's been going on. There's been no salve for these people over the last three years. It's going up less fast, which is much different than uh, negative inflation or things going the other way in a precipitous fashion. Yeah. And, and listen, and I'll just say this is that if you're sitting here and you're waiting for some large drop between now and year end in, in the stock market, it, it's not likely to happen for anything other than something catastrophic, in my opinion, that's going on in the world. Right. So I'm not hoping for that at this time of the year. And the only December that I can remember that was pretty nasty in, in the not so, well, last year, or 2022 wasn't particularly great, but 2018. And without a big yield move or something horrible happening in the world, it's not likely to happen. And we've got to start focusing on that double digit expected EPS growth in the S&P 500 and what we take away from some of these off cycle earnings reports and the sort of visibility that they have. All right, well, listen, we covered a lot of ground here. Liz, great to have you in the studio. Guy, Christopher Adami, we'll see you later. We're going to see Liz on the market call on Thursday on the market call. Guy, you and I got a whole host of stuff this week with Danny and the like. So check it all out on the Risk Reversal Media Instagram page. Obviously, a lot all our videos over there at the Risk Reversal Media YouTube page. Stick around for Vincent Daniel, Porter Collins, and Danny Moses for a special drop of What Are We Doing? See you later. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, 
Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back to On the Tape special, What Are We Doing? It's been a little while since we had you guys on, Porter Collins and Vincent Daniel, my former partners at Seawolf Capital. It's been a wild time since you guys were last on. It's been a wild market. We traded down on the S&P to 4,100 from the 4,550 level. We're back at those levels as we sit here today, midweek, a holiday week. And we were just joking, Vinny, when we were talking before, these are always the weeks where fundamental investing gets put to the wayside and brains are in the closet and the market tends to go up, which is great if you're bullish and, and whatever, and you can take advantage of these kind of moves. But why don't we start with the current state here of of where things are in the markets? First off, happy Thanksgiving to both of you and everyone who's going to be listening to us. Let's separate first the economy and markets. Sadly, the economy seems to be a lot of an easier tell than markets, but we'll get into that in a second. And Porter and I, and, and Danny as well, we always like to deal in high probability outcomes right? So what to me right now is high probability. The the first one is we're seeing a slowdown in the U.S. consumer. That's evident. And Danny, you do a great job reading the transcripts of major publicly traded corporations to see what they're saying. And it is without question, every single retailer that you see is expressing some form of a slowdown of the U.S. consumer in one way or another. It seems to be more acute in large ticket discretionary items. So we're definitely having a slowdown of the U.S. consumer, which means we're having a slowdown in the U.S. economy. The other thing that's highly probable to me for now and for the foreseeable future is that the U.S. government just keeps spending more money than they make. And therefore, we keep building higher fiscal deficits. And so as a result, the need for treasury issuance is material. So as a result of that, I look at this and say, we're probably from an economic perspective going to have tough sledding. Now, that's the negative. The positive is, which is more leading indicating than anything else, is that long-term rates are down 65 basis points. And while that's not a game changer, that definitely helps the U.S. consumer. And oil is down a bunch, particularly as we're recording this today, which again, not a complete game changer, but definitely helps the U.S. consumer. And so as I relate this to markets, and this is the interesting part to me, and it comes back to market structure for me, but when you would have a slowdown of any type of variety, yes, the initial belief would be a, a some form of immaculate slowdown where markets can continue to rise and and the like. But in general, markets would respect slowdowns with the probability of potential for a recession. That doesn't seem to be happening right now for a host of reasons. I blame it mostly on market structure and the reaction function markets have to a declining 10-year treasury. So as a result, it makes life difficult from a market participant that when you see things such as durable goods down a lot, retail consumer slowing down, yet you know the market's not going to react the way your fundamental brain is going to react. So you try to, the way I think about it, gravitate towards what you think is most certain, which leads Porter and myself for the most part to silver and gold as a result, because in our view, if the economy is slowing down, the Fed at the very least is not going to be hiking. 
And as a result of that should be beneficial for hard currencies, which are silver and gold. I noticed, and I know you guys do as well, that gold is now trading with the markets, which lead me to believe the obvious is that the market's trading on the Fed being done and potentially rate cuts being full, pulled forward. And somehow we're going to have this immaculate golden path or whatever Goolsby called it, or the soft landing is going to occur. And I guess the proof is on the shorts to say that's not going to happen at this point. So with that, give us your thoughts here. Sometimes you see the markets and sometimes you just, you're confused. And I don't think I'm as confused as my favorite football team's quarterback, that it would be Zach Wilson and the New York Jets. By the way, has the butt fumble been basically replaced by this falling backwards and then falling into the coach? That was amazing exit strategy. The whole thing is like, my son's like, it's unwatchable. I can't can't watch this. I was like, I said two weeks ago, I said, how do people make their kids Jet fans after what they've been through? But anyway, I feel so bad for him. If I was short that stock, I'd be making a lot of money. You want to be. See, that that hasn't been influenced by the Magnificent Seven. Now that Brady's gone, when you're confused, you, you start going through a bunch of different things and trying to figure out the right path forward. And again, I think a lot of it boils down to the market structure. We were looking at charts the other day and you look at the IWM chart, it looks God awful. And you look at the Q's chart and it's breaking out to new highs. And you got NVIDIA and Apple puts up a pretty stinker of a quarter in guidance and the stock just rips. And when you can't explain it and you can't understand it, I just leave it alone. And you go back to what you can and can't understand. And I'm with Vinny. Things are slowing and the consumer's slowing. We listened to Lowe's the other day. I have to say, Lowe's is doing a pretty good job from a fundamental basis trying to react to the slowdown. And, and again, these companies do a fantastic job of operating within their environments, but the consumer's slowing. I've said this prematurely multiple times, but the Fed's done. The market knows the Fed's done, and we're pricing in lots of cuts at this point. I guess the question for next year is, this is probably our last recording for the year, is that what happens in next year? Is the Fed going to cut or is inflation really going to fall off that much? We talk about things you can't understand. The healthcare costs down 30% magically. The BLS showed the numbers and it was a total fake, right? They faked the, the inflation numbers. And I don't know. It's it's pretty hard to gauge the, the market when everyone just makes up numbers. I I stick to what, what what we're doing. We're pretty defensive here. I said on the last podcast, I wouldn't be surprised for a Q4 rally. And sure enough, there we have a Q4 rally. We haven't done a lot of moving around our positions in the past. I would say four or five months. We're still long a lot of Petrobras, which is which has done well. Our little BGC has done well. You know, so our, our, some of our stocks have done okay, but the oil can't quite break out, right? You've had this OPEC pushed a week. I think oil's pricing in a bit of a slowdown and, and a bit of a OPEC can't get its act together, right? Everyone's producing like crazy. And so the, the production number has been very good. So that's a long-winded way of saying I'm confused. To the point that Vinny made and you just made about the retailers, they're all doing a good job because they're cutting inventory. But if you cut inventory and you manage your business that way, that means you're expecting lower sales going forward. You're not going to have as much product to sell. So to think that this can continue. One thing I'm seeing is that I haven't seen this many Black Friday sales is nuts. We're recording here on uh, Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I'm already getting 75% off sales from places. And then just Porter, let's get into gold real quick. But it feels like we're at a pivotal moment here for gold and everything's lining up. The gold could be the win here. Take everything with a grain of salt because Vinny and I are gold bulls. So that's one thing. But I think it, it reacted pretty well to bad numbers. And they know that the Fed's done at this point. It reacted to the Fed done. And it reacted to lower inflation and worse jobs numbers. And so therefore, it's a sort of a defensive thing. And rates coming down has been very good for it. And that's where I feel like I'm fairly certain 
that the government spending is not going to slow down. I was just with my favorite senator for a week, and it doesn't sound like spending's slowing at all, right? They, they don't even have a concept of, of slowdown in spending, right? They're actually just pushing for more border spending and more military spending. So we have more spending, probably slower tax receipts, higher deficits. And that's the, again, probability weighting stuff. That's the highest probability thing I see. So it's a meaningful chunk of our portfolio. It just sits there. We're not doing anything. It's sort of our insurance piece of our portfolio. So I love it. So Vinny, as part of this, the the feds obviously still has your back and or we'll just print our way and I'll just ignore deficits for a while as long as I can and just pick the shiny object in the room, which, which is the S&P. And I'll worry about it later. Like, what's the mentality of investors, you think? I think the more important question to ask is what's the mentality of the machines, right? So I, I think the majority of machines are built on saying if-then statements. So if the yield on the 10-year treasury is declining, then I buy the S&P or I buy long-duration assets. And why even bother with anything else? Because what has worked for the past on and off for the most part on for the past decade. And of course, the humans follow. The other thing you have is that almost every single incremental dollar going in ETFs are going to a cap-weighted indice, which are the top 15, 20 names. So I, I think it's as simple as that, why the market continues to work. The question becomes, are we going to have enough of a slowdown or a recession? Stop that. And that's the, get back to what Porter says, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I will say this, which as I'm thinking about it, which always intrigues me and interests me is that if we continue to have incremental loosening of financial conditions and markets continue to rally, are we really going to get the rate cuts that people expect next year? I don't think that's as highly probable as what the market's suggesting, given how markets are reacting, because let's fast forward three, four months from now, and let's assume for a second that rates stay where they are or pray tell decline a little bit. You will see better economic activity flowing through the pipes, particularly in areas such as housing. And on the incremental side, and I know this is probably going to be controversial, commercial real estate, a little bit incrementally on the margin. If that were to occur- I agree occur, with you, controversial. All right, it is controversial. If that were to occur- how does Powell go about saying that he's going to be cutting rates? So Porter, Goldman put out a report today that the hedge funds are the most concentrated in 10 names they've ever been. I think 70% of the long portfolio for hedge funds is concentrated into 10 stocks, right? We know that's not healthy. What's really interesting about this is that the S&P 500, yes, is, is going up. And you guys made a point to say you don't really care. You don't trade it as much, which is right. There are a lot of losers and winners within the market. So I've never seen a stock market elevate like this with this many, quote, losers in it. I guess what I'm saying is that it's evident that the hedge funds are concentrating these top names, but I think it's masking what's really going on in the markets. You can look at the equal weight S&P, et cetera, but what are your thoughts? Because you guys really do more bottom-up individual name stuff. Is that accurate? If I had made you guess where the S&P 500 would be without looking at it, knowing what you've seen in the last kind of quarterly reports and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks from retailers, would you think that the S&P was at 4550 without knowing where those top seven names have gone? There's been a lot of chatter back and forth of that Goldman report, whether the hedge funds are really concentrated in the top names. That might be the case. What I think is that the hedge funds have been destroyed in this year. The shorts have been a graveyard this year. You talk about January, February, things rolled over. They ripped back the middle part of the year, rolled over again, and then the past couple of weeks ripped again. And so these highly shorted names just keep going. And so I think that even though the hedge funds have massively underperformed the S&P this year again, for the 27th year in a row, I think they are all loaded in a lot of Microsoft. I prefer to think of them at the Magnificent Six like you do, but take Tesla. Seal Team yeah. Six. 
Yeah. Still theme six. We can talk about Tesla, but I, I think things are really wrong there. And unlike NVIDIA, which, you know, hard to argue the numbers were really good last night. You know, maybe they're double ordering everything and numbers will fall a lot next year, but they've smashed numbers, right? They, you know, I pleaded with Dan midsummer to stop talking about NVIDIA. I mean, the numbers have been fantastic. I don't know how you argue with that. And the stock's up 250% as a result. This goes back to Marcus Scherzer and Vinny's comment. So most of the large hedge funds that we know are not set up to be able to short small and mid-cap names. They have to go after the big guys to offset their portfolio. The real alpha I still argue this. There is stock picking going on. Has been in small and mid cap, and that's where you guys, I know, make your money. Is in those kind of those on the long and on the short side. And I think that it's an interesting time period where if you're small enough and nimble enough to be able to stock pick, it's a great market. And so maybe this is an opportunity, Vinny, to talk about some names that you guys have been able to bob and weave and adjust to. Because if you didn't know where the S and P was, you would know that the markets there's winners, but there's a lot of losers in the market, and it's just not showing up in the big levels because of the concentrated weighting. I'll give Vinny some credit. Last time he came on air, and I think he pitched Aircap, which played out exactly like he 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 predicted. Right? They had a fantastic quarter. GE, I think it was GE, came out of the stock. They sold their last slug, and the stock just absolutely ripped higher. So that's a pretty good example of you can see the catalyst in front of you. You can see how the idea works. And, and a lot of people will argue back at him. It hasn't worked in a long time. That's okay. Once you traffic in these names long enough, when the catalysts occur and when to get in them. And so I think Vinny successfully timed that one. And I still think it's a long year. Full disclosure, we still own Aircap. I think based upon their fundamentals and, and what's going on, I think there's a lot more upside. And Danny, you might remember, I, I have a serious man crush on the CEO. He's arguably the best CEO I've ever seen in terms of executing, yet the market never gives him credit in the form of a stock that trades below its tangible net worth. So he, what does he do? He just goes out and buys back stock with the excess cash flows that he has. Another name that, that I'll give Porter credit is BGC Partners. It's a very controversial name in the financial services universe, but it's so small that most people don't know what the hell it is. They're an interdealer broker for all things fixed income, energy, commodities, and the like. And the reason why we started buying it was because for the first time in 14 years, we no longer have a NERP policy, and we also have excessive treasury debt issuance, which they should be the one of the ultimate beneficiaries of it. Controversial to the point where the CEO is not necessarily the most beloved character in the world, Howard Lutnick. Nevertheless, fundamental trends are fundamental trends, and they're really good, combined with the fact that he's in the process of trying to create an exchange that can add incremental value to the company. So Danny, you are right. I believe that in the world where no one's paying attention to, in this sandbox of SMIG cap, where most people can't pay attention to, there's tremendous inefficiencies on both sides of the equation. We have a new small odd one, but we're in some of these, they're not REITs anymore, but the prison stocks, which basically have most of their private prisons, which mostly act along the border. And you talk about new border spending. These stocks are huge beneficiaries of that. Geo and CXW, those are the those are two stocks I would highlight for next year or even for now. There's spots to operate and a lot of little pockets of, of strength and undervalued companies that people leave for dead and it can turn around pretty quickly with some catalysts and with some news. So yeah, that's basically what we do. We bob and weave in these small and mid-cap names. I think it's really interesting that I just asked you to talk about your portfolio. I set it up to maybe talk about shorts. You just pitched three or four longs, which I think is really interesting. And I've made the comment on, on the tape, you know, on the podcast that there's opportunities always on both sides of the equation. You mentioned Petrobras and the energy side of things. Give us the energy landscape. The king commodity is oil. And oil's really chopped around recently. And, and we've talked a little bit about OPEC and 
the production numbers out of the U.S. have been very strong. Yes, production's been good. I think that one of the biggest parts, besides Petrobras, the biggest parts of our portfolio have been in coal, but that's more linked to Met Coal, right? You think about coal that's used to make steel. And from that perspective, Met Coal prices have done really well this year. And so stocks like AMR, HCC, and even BTU has 50% of their production in Met Coal. We haven't really changed our positioning in those coal stocks and continue to be long. And again, you talk about little pockets of the market, which can do well. And that, that's how we try to segregate what's going on. And behind the choppiness of oil, if you can find names where you think is going higher, whether it's an angle on Brazil, because rates are coming down, currency is strengthening against the dollar, their production numbers are up. So you can find pockets despite choppiness of oil and same thing with coal names. So that, that, that's how we think about it. Let's rewind the clock and start the beginning of the year with the advent of the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. And if you would have told me that coal names would be up 60% and wind and solar names, and Danny, you were talking about pockets of the market where they've been very, very heavy and depressed, the wind and solar names have gotten destroyed. How about right? lithium? And lithium has been demolished. And lithium has been demolished. And even though we were positioned this way on the long side in uranium, I would have never have guessed that this year would have been the year of uranium over wind and solar. I would have expected that we would have had to wait two or three years. But it, but Vinny, it makes sense if you think about our capital cycle thesis, right? Money comes in, prices go down. Money comes out, prices go up. And, and so that's how we, we think about things. You know, we weren't long lithium stocks. We weren't long EV stocks. And so a lot of these offshore wind projects are being totally dismantled because the, the, the numbers don't pencil out. A lot of EV sales have been very weak. And look at all these production cuts by, by the big three and by Tesla as well. It's pretty bad these days. I just think you've hit a saturation point in EV sales that a lot of people are saying like, I don't know, I don't want to have to worry about getting from A to B and running out of juice, right? Whereas you have gas stations at every corner in the U.S. I was just with a, f a friend of mine and he, he bought a new EV car and he was plugging it in. He, had to, he was freaking out, plugging it in everywhere he went. And so everyone was making fun of him. I just don't know that it's practical yet, like for a fully integrated U.S. economy to be part of what's going on. Part of that also is oil prices come down. People don't feel as compelled, right, to go out and do it. But let's just move right into Tesla. And I don't want to make this all about it. But again, of all the fundamental, just if you put Elon Musk to the side and just call him neutral, not controversial, just looked at this company itself, right, which everything's been on the come. It's an auto company. It is and it will be for a while until they can prove anything else, in my opinion. You look at a name like that, at what point do, does that name, you think, start to trade on fundamentals? Because it's tried a few times. It hangs around. It hangs around. It's just love. I think people think of it as a that they're taking a side, that they're not looking at fundamentals, and that's fine. Because all the other companies, the rest of the other SEAL Team 6, I could argue all have very strong fundamentals. This one does. But Denny, if, if you look at the relative strength of Tesla versus the Magnificent 7, it's been terrible. Look at the Qs, which is, I think, as we speak, a all-time high. And Tesla still is, I don't know. I understand that. And listen, bucks below great, the we're in an absolute game. I mean, for the most part, not relative game, that you know, the way I think about the markets. All I'm saying is, at what point it is diverging from those other six, but at what point does it diverge from itself in terms of trade? What is it going to take to make this thing trade on fundamentals? How many targets have to be missed? How many promises have to be broken? At what point does the towel get thrown? That's a hard one because go, go back to Vinny's market structure. The money just flows 
to those seven names. And I think that, that that's what happens. And you are getting people coming to the conclusion that maybe things aren't that good here. And that's why the underperformance has been so big. And anything in the EV space has been an utter disaster. We've had a, a nice short on ChargePoint, which is a EV charging station. Stock's been crushed this year, right? And, and the fundamentals just don't pencil out. And I think that if you stick to that, and uh, especially on the short side, where numbers just don't pencil out, you, you eventually make money, I think. The, the joke for us is that we stumbled on a theme in our short book, which is basically to go short everything the cult will hate in EVs. So Porter mentioned ChargePoint. We've also been short Lucid. And the beauty of those things is the Musk cult does not take valuation into account when they're investing in things. They just simply don't. And you could get angry all you want about it. It is what it is. However, if Musk does not like certain names, they'll never buy it. So you've lost a big part of the investor TAM that might potentially invest in Lucid or might potentially invest in, in Rivian or ChargePoint, but they won't. So in many respects, you can short them without worrying about at least a slice of the market that overpays for things. I'm a big Rivian CEO fan, but the Lucid is the ugliest car I've ever seen and they don't sell any, so. Well, and they also lose about 270,000 per vehicle. Hard to make money that way. To answer your question on the Tesla, I don't know. Like I, I could safely say, I don't know when the markets are going to reflect fundamentals. To be fair to Tesla, they've done a very good job of creating an additional energy storage business. Now, of course, the analyst community, the, the people who favor Tesla, put a TAM on in 2035 with crazy margins and a crazy multiple and ascribe a crazy valuation. But nevertheless, that has been a very good pivot on their part, something to consider. I'm actually a little surprised that people are not looking at the amount of cars that are being sold, Tesla cars that are being sold, which is now starting to not exceed expectations, actually disappoint expectations. And it has an impact of the stock more. But as we know, this is the, the craziest of stocks we've ever seen in our career. So we shouldn't be surprised about anything. I think we will all agree that in China, they're going to have the biggest problem, right? Because the competitors are just coming in with the, all these fantastic cars with Neo and BYD and stuff like that. Look at the stock today. The stock is down. Tesla's down. And the Qs are up 110 bips as, as we speak on here on, on Wednesday. So one area that's so funny, every time we get together, it's always in the backdrop, which is banks and financials. And our former partner, Steve Eisman, has been publicly saying there's really nothing to do, which is probably the case for the most part, but there's always kind of something to do. And I know you guys have spent a ton of time on the regionals, names like Schwab also that are in there. Give us a sense of what you're doing in the banks, what you're looking for. And the question for us and for the market is how will the, these names perform? Right. And how, how will the credit perform? And I think you've been seeing overall in the subprime delinquency trends have been very poor. And, and you, you think about in, in a market where unemployment is super low, GDP, nominal GDP has been super strong. And yet delinquencies are almost peaking, right? Not peaking, but growing. You mean they're not? Yeah, but, they're but, just... or back to peak levels. I, sorry, back to peak levels. And so I just want to make sure you don't. Say anything bullish. No. Keep going. And, and so that's the concern, right? It's the, sa the same concern I have for this budget deficit. When things actually do slow down, the budget deficit is going to be even worse. And when things actually do slow down, these subprime delinquency trends are going to be really bad because I think that people have gotten used to not paying their bills, right? Oh, I'll get a handout. And I think the underwriting has been very poor over this last cohort of because you've just had this wave of poor underwriting, given the fact that rates have been so low, right? And unemployment's been so strong. And so I think when things normalize, you're going to see some, some bad credit out there. 
from what I'm seeing in the numbers, I, I agree with you. We've seen a slow deterioration, it's like retail spending, a slow deterioration in consumer credit. Nothing horrifically alarming, but then again, it doesn't usually happen. The only time we had consumer credit horrifically alarming was during the GFC. So what I think we're seeing is pretty normal. The question is how the degree is to where it goes. In terms of translating it into stocks, I like buying credit-related names after the fact, or, or at least in the middle innings of we're about to see peak charge-offs and defaults. And I don't think we're there yet. I don't know how severe it gets, but I know it's going higher, right? So charge-offs are going higher. So I prefer not to own them. I actually want to spend a little bit of time on the regionals and the large cap banks. And I tweeted this out yesterday. So within the last, say, two, three weeks, we've gotten announcements from banks. Citibank was the latest one saying that they're starting a private credit strategy, which I find hilarious because in my view, private credit is synonymous with a loan. So the banks are starting a loan strategy. They're in the business of making loans, at least the last time I checked, they've been in the business of making loans for hundreds and hundreds of years. What's different of them starting a private credit strategy now? What they're really doing is getting into the asset management business because the hottest thing to sell as a marketer to institutional clients right now is private credit or loans. So as a result, rather than put them on their balance sheet because they can't because the risk rates are too high, they're actually going to be selling it to other people, which means you're going to see a proliferation, if they're successful, of tremendous credit growth above and beyond what people are expecting. If I was an investor right now, I would not be investing in these products. No. Personally, because you're probably getting the incremental poorest credits in commercial land, but that's not going to stop a marketer from going to the easiest low-hanging fruit, which is providing private credit. As a retail investor, you should never be buying what they're selling you. That's a general rule of thumb, right? Because whatever you're seeing is the last dregs of what's going on. And the other interesting aspect of this is that everyone's moving towards private credit, right? And what they're not doing is private equity. If you look at, at I think Carlisle was out the other day saying that they're lowering the target of, of their fund because they don't see the demand there. And and all these private the pension funds and these all these big guys are all full of private equity. And so I think that's an interesting play of what's going to go on here. As people push into private credit, they're full of private equity. And I think that even some of the flows to these big platform funds are going to slow as well because an environment where rates are so high, I think that 5 6% rates, some things are more attractive than been pushing into to yield and products. I think you're going to be seeing interesting flows next year. I just think that Vinny's point and your point, when we saw the B-REIT, the Blackstone REIT, which I know is concentrated in commercial real estate and not necessarily, quote, private credit, it's still the extend and pretend to be able to charge fees and limit redemptions and extend and pretend and all this kind of stuff, which you're saying, careful of what they're trying to sell you. It's the same type thing. My argument in private credit has been, yeah, it might be great for the lender, but the borrowers, if they're underwriting correctly, should be starting to pay a much higher rate in that type of environment. But we will see how that plays out. And I'm sure the next time we're, we're going to be together, I know we're going to be physically together, is at the iConnections conference in late January, where the three of us and Steve Eisman will be together for the first time in a long time. And it should be a really interesting time period. We'll have seen the fourth quarter earnings for many companies. Certainly the banks will have another Fed meeting or right into the Fed meeting under our belt right then. So looking forward to seeing you guys again. And, and listen, 
keep up the great work. And you guys have done an amazing job being able to kind of bob and weave through this environment. And what I think, I do think it's a stock picker's market. I just think the stock picking is taking place in the small and mid cap names right now. I think that continues. And if we do ever get a sell off in these SEAL Team 6 that are left out, there, it'd be really interesting to see how the market plays out. So Danny, another public service announcement. People should not be putting their money in these private credit funds. If there's a time not to be doing it, this is the time not to be doing it. Public address. Got it. All right, guys. Happy holidays. And we will talk again, certainly in January. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.